the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Kingdom Feast, friend, is not your feast. It's not my feast. The feast is for God's Son. Do you hear me? That's Pastor Michael Oxentenko, and this is Reaching Your Heart. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe that God answers prayer. If you need prayer, you can call at any time, 24-7, 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Someone is standing by right now to take your phone call. Today's Reaching Your Heart with Pastor Michael Tanko is entitled, The Wedding Garment. That's The Wedding Garment. We'll bring you the first portion of this message here today. But due to our time constraints, we'll need to bring you the second half the next time we get together. Again, The Wedding Garment, and here is our pastor teacher, Michael Tanko with today's Reaching Your Heart. George Santayana once wrote... Life is neither a spectacle nor a feast, it is a predicament. How many of you ever felt like that? Well, it is sometimes. You know, we live in a world where some varieties of fruits have learned to talk to animals so the animals can help them spread their seed afar. I mean, it's a predicament to be eaten to survive, you know, and that's what the fruit have to do. In the Kabali National Park in Uganda, red berries and orange figs hang on the trees deep inside the rainforest, perfectly adapted to speak an animal's language so as to invite just the right animal to come and eat them. It's as if the plant is saying, eat my fruit, come and eat me. Now, researchers now understand, in fact, they've studied the color patterns of these fruit specimens and how the animals interact with them. It's not the animal that's seeking the fruit. It's the fruit that's seeking the animal. The animal's saying, please come and eat me. Now, these plants have adapted to communicate to these animals. Now, while they don't have brains, somehow in their genes, the information says, you need me because I need you. Smart fruit, they call it. Smart fruit is a way of telling just the right animal, not just any animal, just the right animal to come and eat them because that right animal will take the seed to just the right place 2,000 miles away so that that seed can propagate and the plant can live on through offspring. Now here's the paradox, the predicament here. You see, you have to die to spread your life around. You have to become a feast to get your seed in just the right ground. And so smart fruit is crying out, please come, come and eat me. Now I'd like you to know that in the Bible, Jesus Christ is the living seed of God. Christ is the fruit of God that gives life to the world. And the call at the end of time to come to God is the call to come and feast on the person of Jesus Christ and to spread the seed everywhere. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew 22 verse 1. Right before Christ comes... The Bible says there will be a meaningful personal call to come to a marriage feast for his son in which men and women all over the world will have an opportunity to come and feast on the person of Jesus Christ, the beauty and character of Jesus Christ. I'm in a time in my life, and I'll be very transparent with you, I don't want to hear a bunch of nonsense from theologians anymore. Are you hearing me? I don't want to hear... 
people pontificate about some tradition that they have in the past. As I get older, I want Jesus Christ in my life. I want the fruit of a glorious Savior in me. I want to feed on the Bible and feed on the person of Christ. And at the end of time, what the world needs is not some eloquent speaker. What the world needs is the eloquence of the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew 22.1, notice how it starts. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, that's God the Father implied, who gave a marriage for his son, Jesus Christ implied, And so the kingdom of heaven is between the Father and the Son. It's a marriage feast that is for the Son. Look at verse 3. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the marriage feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, Behold, I have made ready my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves are killed, and everything is ready to come to the marriage feast. Now Christ says that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a marriage for his son. In other places, like in Matthew 18, 23, he says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When you read Matthew 18, 23 and the parable that follows, it's very clear that he's describing the kingdom of heaven as an investigative judgment in which there is an auditing of the books of God's people as settling of accounts and the king determines who is in the kingdom or not. But here we have another parable. Here the focus is not upon the investigative judgment aspect of the kingdom of heaven. Here the focus on the kingdom of heaven concerns the king's love for his son. The kingdom is here pictured as a kingdom feast for the son, that the father throws for the son. Now there is prophetic background for this parable that Jesus has, and we have to open our Bibles and go back to the book of Daniel to understand it. Let me give you a big overview of Daniel 2 and 7, which will help us to understand the parable. In Daniel 2, the prophet Daniel describes four great world empires and Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a metallic man. He tells him what the dream means. The gold of the metallic man represents the kingdom of Babylon. The silver kingdom is what? How many of you have been in Bible studies here? What does it represent? The kingdom of Medo-Persia. Very good. The brass that follows is the kingdom of what? Greece. And then the iron represents the what? The iron monarchy of Rome. So these four successive medals represent four successive periods of world history where great world empires ruled. And finally, modern Europe is represented as ten toes of iron mixed with miry clay. The iron of Rome goes to the end in some form. But it's a mixed up kind of form where you have strong nations and weak nations. And thus in the Middle Ages we have the divided Europe here pictured in Daniel chapter 2. Now, when you look at the image more directly, it's a metal image of a man. Why would it be a picture of a man? In contrast to the stone, which we will see as the rock of ages. Because the image of a man is here to indicate that all of these kingdoms together, as you move from Babylon to the end of time, all of them are nothing but human devisings. They stand in contrast to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God. Now, the fifth kingdom is the kingdom of heaven. Take your Bibles and turn with me. Daniel 2. Verse 42, and let's look at the verse together. Daniel's here given the description, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with miry clay, so they will mix one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Many people don't understand the time of the fulfillment of this. If you follow the history of the Roman Empire, the last emperor of Rome, 476, removed by a Hirali king, 
And then Europe splits into essentially ten pieces, little kingdoms. But the fabric of Rome lives on in the divided Rome or Europe of the Middle Ages. A powerful religious force arises during the Middle Ages. But what's significant is this. Europe was trying to unite, not in the Middle Ages, but near the end of the Middle Ages. In fact, when you come to the Napoleonic Wars at the time of the French Revolution, Europe was so torn apart that the great families of Europe said, we've got to get together. We've got to unite here. How do we do that? And it was thought, well, this family here can marry with this family and so on. And if we get them all together, we'll have a single unified bloodline and there won't be any more shedding of blood in Europe. It didn't work. In fact, the failure of the great nations of Europe to unite by marriage came to a head in World War I. There were four major groups, the Hohenzollerns, the Habsburgs, the Romanovs, and then you had the Ottoman Turks. And these four major ruling families in Europe, a number of them were interconnected by bloodline in World War I when Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated at Sarajevo. But when World War I ran its course... These four major families fell out of power, and their attempt to unite by marriage, which had occurred in the 1800s, collapsed, and we are now living in the time when we no longer have these great ruling families in Europe and the world. And so verse 43 brings us down to World War I, the failure to unite by marriage in the 1800s, followed by World War I, in which they gave up. So look at verse 43 again. As you saw the iron mixed with miry clay, so they will mix one another in marriage. And what does the text say next? But they what? They will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. The world will not unite that way. Verse 44. But in the days of those kings. Now we should not take for granted any small phrase in the Bible here. The monarchies collapsed in World War I. The actual kings were in power in the 1800s. So here's what the Bible's saying in the days of those kings, right near the collapse of the historical monarchies. That puts it in the 1800s. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor shall its sovereignty be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. The Bible is saying before World War I, before these monarchies pass from the scene, there is something that happens in heaven in which God's kingdom is set up, and that heavenly event brings the end of the world. Verse 45 just as you saw that a stone was cut out of a mountain by no human hand. It broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be hereafter. And so the focus here is not what happens on earth. The focus in Daniel 2 is what happens at the top of a great mountain when a stone is cut out of the mountain in the days of those kings, meaning the 1800s contextually. Now, the Aramaic word for stone is a word play for the Hebrew word sun. The word for stone in Hebrew is eben. The word for sun is ben. It's called the eben ben word play. And so what's being spoken of here is the stone sun kingdom. The stone sun kingdom. The mountain represents the kingdom of God. It's not way down low. It's not on earth. In the context of Daniel 2, it's way up high. It's at the top of a mountain. God's house is a mountain house. And so the last great world empire is not something down here. It's not something connected to a metallic man. It is something that's way up there. And the focus of that kingdom is a stone sun kingdom. And that high up kingdom has everything to do with the Son of God. Daniel 7. Now we go to the next chapter in Daniel. Daniel 7, the kingdom of heaven is given to the Son of Man. The focus of the judgment, that way high up event in the 1800s, 
is not anything other than Jesus Christ. Just like Daniel 2, there are four great world empires in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 repeats Daniel 2 with more understanding than Daniel 2. Some people say, Pastor Mike, why on earth does the Bible seem to repeat itself a lot? Have you noticed that it does that? Have you noticed that? Well, why would it do that? Here's why. Because we have a hard time learning it the first time. So God goes over it again in different ways so that we'll come to grips with it and understand his truth. And also so he can deepen us in a greater understanding of something simple. So often he starts with the simple, he repeats himself, gives more information until we can really get a handle on what's going on. So basically here, just like Daniel 2, there are four great world empires. Daniel 7 repeats Daniel 2, but there's more understanding in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, the lion represents Babylon, just like the head of gold of Daniel 2. Now, why would the lion represent Babylon? Because it's a winged lion. It stands up on its feet like a man, a heart of a man is given to it. You remember Nebuchadnezzar when he went crazy? His hair grew like eagle's feathers, and so this lion has eagle's wings. And then Nebuchadnezzar was made to stand up, and the mind of a man returned to him. And so the exact language of Nebuchadnezzar's fall and rise is given in the picture of the lion. So we know the lion represents Babylon, just like the head of gold in the image. In Daniel 7, the bear with two sides is the same kingdom as Medo-Persia in the image of Daniel 2. The four-headed leopard is Greece that was divided into the four parts after the death of Alexander. In the image of Daniel 2, we don't have four parts to the brass waist. But when you get over to Daniel chapter 7, we learn that the Greek empire, the third kingdom, was divided into four pieces after Alexander's death. The fourth kingdom in Daniel 7 is a beast with iron teeth. Now what metal in Daniel 2 is iron? First, second, third, or fourth? The fourth. And the iron represents Rome. And so the fourth beast has iron teeth and bronze claws. You say, wait, Pastor Mike. Now, Greece was the color of bronze in Daniel 2. So why does this fourth beast have iron and bronze in it? Iron is Rome. Bronze is Greece. You see, Daniel 7 gives us more information. Pastor Michael Oxentenka will continue in just a moment. Reaching Your Heart is a listener-supported program. We step out in faith to purchase airtime on this station because we believe God is working through this radio ministry to touch tens of thousands of lives. Each of our messages is prayed over, biblical messages of hope and Bible truth. To continue, we need your support. We do not have a large ministry fundraising machine. We operate totally by faith. Call our toll-free number to make your contribution of any size today. That number is 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. Or you can stop by our website, reachingyourheart.com. That's reachingyourheart.com. Let's get back to the broadcast now. Here is Pastor Michael Oxentenka with more of today's Reaching Your Heart. So why does this fourth beast have iron and bronze in it? Iron is Rome, bronze is Greece. You see, Daniel 7 gives us more information. The fourth kingdom is the Greco-Roman Empire. It has the language and culture and religion of Greece, but it's fused with the political might of Rome. Thus you have iron and brass in this fourth beast. Now these ten horns that grow out of the fourth beast are identified in Daniel 7. 24. And it's interesting, if you look at the image of Daniel 2, it comes down to the feet. How many toes on most people's feet? How many of you have ten toes on your feet? Now, if my brother was in the crowd here, he'd have to put his hand down. He was driving a three-wheeler. 
they quit making these things because he flipped it. And then it went against a tree, and the three-wheeler went against his foot, and he lost a toe. So my brother has nine toes. He's not in this group. Most of us have ten toes. Sometimes people can grow an extra toe. But the ten toes represent the ten kingdoms of the divided Europe. In Daniel 7.24, they ruled during the Middle Ages, after the end of the old Roman Empire. So after their rise to power, around the 6th century, when you have the end of the old order, the beginning of the new, the ten horns are followed by a little horn that usurps the dominion of Jesus Christ. Now many Bible students who prayerfully study Daniel 7 recognize the little horn is the antichrist of the book of Daniel. It uproots three Christian kingdoms, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, and the Vandals, Christianized peoples in Europe that arose at the beginning of the Middle Ages, but it uproots them shortly after their rise. It has eyes and a mouth like the Son of Man. In other words, in Daniel 7, there's a man, all right, it's the Son of Man, but this little horn looks like a Son of Man, but he's not a Son of Man. In Daniel 7, this little horn exercises a dominion that looks like it belongs to the Son of Man, but doesn't have a right to it. In the context, this little horn is the church-state kingdom of the Middle Ages that came out of the Roman Empire, that merged with the church of the Middle Ages, that claimed to forgive sins and hold the keys of the kingdom in its hands. Daniel says it has dominion over the saints. And with those keys, it thought to control the destiny of the soul. Daniel describes this kingdom as an imposter religious kingdom. And the judgment sits after the 1260 years of persecution. In Daniel 7.25, that time period is referred to as a time, times, and dividing of times. Why? Well, three and a half years is how many months? Come on, help me do the math here. 42 months. The Bible uses a 30-day month an approximated lunar calendar month of 29.56 days, a 30-day month in Bible prophecy. So get your calculators out. 42 times 30. Crunch the math for me. Whoever has their hand raised first, I'll give them extra credits, and maybe they'll go through line first at the fellowship meal. 1260. So when you see 1260 days in Revelation 12.6, a time, times, and dividing of times in Daniel 7.25, Daniel 12.7, in Revelation 12.14... And when you see 42 months, like in Revelation 11, verse 2, I believe, and then also in Revelation 13, verse 5, it's always the same time prophecy. It represents 1,260 prophetic days. In the Bible, a day is a year. It's 1,260 years. That's a long time. I'm 55. 1,260 years. Wouldn't it be great to live that long? Someone's shaking their head. Wouldn't it be great? I would take it. Okay, I kind of like the idea. And so the Bible is saying this little horn power spans the centuries in the Middle Ages. And this little horn power usurps the role and position of Jesus Christ. This little horn power looks like he's the Son of Man, but he's not the Son of Man. And this little horn power, in fact, has a a three-and-a-half-year counterfeit ministry. In Jesus' life, he had a a three-and-a-half-year real ministry. And so three and a half prophetic years are allotted to the little horn power, whereby it tears down the church. Christ built the church up in three and a half years. And so heaven is so frustrated with this that at the end of this little horn power's reign, a judgment convenes in heaven to take this religio-political power out. And the direct result of that judgment is the French Revolution, where this power comes down. So the little horn power tried to tear down the church of God. Open your Bibles, Daniel 7, 25. Let's read about the horn here a little bit. 
The Bible says in verse 25, he shall speak words against the Most High. Well, he's not an atheist power. He's a religious power. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. This power persecutes the Christian church that is faithful to the Bible in the Middle Ages. Now, it has been speculated because no one has the exact stats, but a good number is that 50 to 200 million people died because of the oppression of this religio-political power. But here it gets real focused. It shall think. Now, not that it can do this, but it shall think to change the times and the law. It would reach in the Ten Commandment law of God. It would find that part of God's law that relates to sacred time, the seventh-day Sabbath. And it would think that it could change the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. And this happened in the 6th century at the Council of Orleans, affirming what had transpired earlier in the 4th century. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, two times, and half a time. We've already demonstrated that that is 1,260 years. This power dominates the Middle Ages. Verse 26, what brings it down? But the court shall sit in judgment. That's not the earthly court. That's not some tribunal here in Europe or that kind of thing. This is a court in heaven. Just like the stone was cut out of the mountain in heaven, there is a heavenly judgment that's pictured in Daniel 7, where the Ancient of Days takes his seat, where the books are open in Daniel 7, and the horn is deposed because of that investigative judgment. Verse 26, the court shall sit in judgment. And what does the text say? His dominion shall be what? Taken away to be consumed and destroyed at the end. He loses his dominion in time. He loses his life. This power comes down. Verse 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints, and the most high. I want to be in the kingdom. What about you? The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a feast that a king had for his son. The Bible is absolutely clear that the King of Heaven will be given to the saints of the Most High after the Middle Ages. But in the parable of Matthew 22.1, Jesus plainly states that the King of Heaven is like a marriage feast that a king gave for his son. And that's what I want to focus on today. The kingdom feast, friend, is not your feast. It's not my feast. The feast is for God's Son. Do you hear me? Look at Daniel 7.13. Let's go a little bit earlier in the chapter there. Daniel describes what happens after the books are open, after the Ancient of Days takes his seat. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now that's Christ. That's Jesus. And he came where in the context? What does it say? He came to the Ancient of Days. Now the Ancient of Days is sitting on his throne inside the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary pictured in Daniel 7 because God's throne is a chariot in 1 Chronicles 28.18, the Bible says that God's chariot is the Ark of the Covenant. So he is sitting on the heavenly Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. The books are open. That's where Lucifer rebelled. That's where sin started. Thus this heavenly judgment is there. And Christ comes to the Ancient of Days contextually inside the most holy place in a cloud here similar to what the high priest would have on the great day of atonement when a cloud of incense would fill the most holy place and he would come in before the Ark of the Covenant. So Christ is here coming before God. He's not coming to the earth in the context. He's coming to God before the end of the world, in heaven, into the most holy place. Verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In the end time, heavenly judgment of Daniel 7. Friend, God the Father will give the kingdom to Jesus Christ. Doesn't that make you get kind of thrilled from head to foot? God will give his kingdom to his son. At the end of time, inside the most holy place, he will give it to him. So contextually, this judgment is not an earthly event. It's a heavenly event in a high up mountain that is the kingdom of heaven. In Luke 18, 12, Jesus tells us plainly that he receives his kingdom in heaven and then he returns. Take your Bibles, open to Luke 19, 12, would you? He said, therefore, what does the text say? A nobleman went where? To a far off country. Now the nobleman in the parable is Jesus. A nobleman went into a far off country to receive what? A kingdom. And notice what it says next. And then return. Now why did Christ go to heaven? For the purpose of receiving his kingdom, not here on earth, but where? In that far off country in heaven. And once he has received his kingdom, what happens in this verse? He then returns. So there must be a pre-advent judgment in which Christ receives his kingdom in heaven from his Father before the second coming. That's what the parable teaches. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time for today's broadcast. We'll continue with the wedding garment the next time we get together here on Reaching Your Heart. Here at Reaching Your Heart, we believe in prayer. We believe in the God who answers our prayers and meets our needs. Each week, we are standing by to receive your prayer requests and seek God with you. His word declares, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Call our prayer line today with your requests and our team will join you in seeking that the God of heaven will meet each one of your needs. Our telephone number is 888-244-HOPE. That's 888-244-4673. If you would like to listen to this message again, it is available for you at reachingyourheart.com. Once again, reachingyourheart.com. There are many messages available along with this broadcast as well. Thanks for listening today. And as always, we want you to know that we do pray that God is reaching your heart. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.